Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is John Owens, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Chief Information Officer. John, welcome back to the program. I think this may be a record third appearance on my program, so thank you for coming back. Well, thank you, Jason. It's interesting because most CIOs don't stay long enough to come on three times, <laughs> so that's where we're going to start. Nine years you've been CIO at PTO. That's a long time. I think the record, by the way, is 13 years, if I have this right. Oh. I, th I think there's another CIO who spent 13 years, and, and maybe even longer, but let's just a little bit how things have changed in the federal IT community over your last nine years as a CIO at PTO. A lot has changed. Everything from when I first got here, how we did contracting to waterfall management of projects and adapting to the industry standards for obviously agile and DevOps and user-centered design and working with our customers and building new products and shutting off the legacy products, all while keeping them operational and secure has been a constant evolution and challenge is the IT space and the government has really put its foot on the gas and evolved over the last few years. What's interesting is when you came in, client server was still big. I remember Mark Foreman if, uh, from the federal CIO, even though that wasn't his official title, started talking about grid computing. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? And finally, I understood it, but it became cloud. So the evolution that you've seen is, is huge. What surprised you over the last decade? I mean, did you think we'd be in client server forever, for instance? Oh, no. I spent all my prior years uh, in private industry. We were already touching on the cloud, and we were already doing agile development for, what, almost seven years before I got to the became the federal CIO for the USPTO. So I didn't believe that the government would stay forever in its legacy. I think part of what hurt the government is they stagnated for so long. And with the evolutions of technology that could fit in our hand, take the uh, our cell phones, for example, being mini computers now, it was inevitable. People were, people were going to ask, why do I have to use this text-based server system when everything else around me has modernized? And keeping the systems, of course, updated and secure in a modern environment is a lot easier. Cloud computing sees cost reductions and availability of 24 by 7 for most services that we all expect through the big private industry corporations that provide us uh, IT. And I, I believe it was inevitable. I'm glad that it happened during my tenure. I don't think I could have stayed as long as I had in a client-server environment. But uh, certainly seeing that evolution in the government really try to catch up very quickly through good leaders, good leadership through the IT space over the years has been uh, a pleasure of mine. When you talk about staying as long as you have nine years, and in some ways it's it's excellent. Some people go, what are you, nuts? <laughs> it's nine years in, in the CIO job because there's a lot of stress and you don't want to be that person that they call up and say, hey, why is my BlackBerry working? Or now we call them iPhones, I guess, or, or Android devices. What are the keys to longevity? I mean, obviously fun or, or at least uh, uh, happiness is one big one. <laughs> One might say I'm crazy. Uh, I've, I've heard that before, so you're not the first person to bring that up. I was like, how did you do it? I said, I don't know. I, I certainly feel a closeness to the mission of the USPTO. I am in my last position in my last company. I applied for a few patents. I am the primary inventor on a published patent in the computer networking area. I take a lot of pride in that. I take a lot of pride in one of the oldest institutions in the United States being the protections of patents, patent examination. Of course, Thomas Jefferson, the first patent examiner and commissioner, 
and really protecting that intellectual property is a major player in how our country has evolved in the rights of the individual and protecting those rights so that people can have invention and make profit from them is very close to my heart. And so I think one of the keys to success as a CIO is having longevity. I know a lot of people come in, they're like, oh, I can't do this for more than a year or two, and then they leave. But the fact of the matter is, is by having a longer-term view, I didn't try to rush one or two things out the door. I tried to take care of everything very slowly. Started off with nine major initiatives, covering everything from network stability to change in the way we do financial management inside of the CIO and uh, creating capital investment and reducing operations and maintenance funds. And so by taking that longer-term point of view, saying, hey, I'm going to stick with this and make a difference for something I believe in, I think set the USPTO off on a, a solid track of success. Not that everything has been successful. Certainly we've had our share of failures, but we've learned from those, and we've changed the culture inside and outside of my organization uh, to, a, I would say, an overall, if you look at all nine years, I'm just shy of nine years, basically, to more success than failure. And, and I look forward to the agency continuing that. It's interesting when you talk about a lot of CIOs do come in. There was an old GAO report that everyone likes to highlight. It says, oh, the average tenure of a CIO is 18 to 24 months. I did a story, I guess, at the end of 2016 and found that the a average tenure of a CIO is actually almost four years. I think that's changed now because we've seen a lot of turnover over the last year or more. And some of that's uh, typical with change of administration and some of that's just typical with, with people looking for new opportunities. Do you think that, though, being able to stay almost nine years, having that long-term view, not necessarily saying, well, I'm going to be in and out, that was able to let you do things in, in a way that maybe if you were only going to be here for a year or two, you would not have been able to do Oh, absolutely. I absolutely believe that taking a longer-term vision has allowed us to focus on a holistic organizational and cultural change. Part of changing the federal government to adapt to industry standards is changing the culture. That does not happen overnight, not compared to industry, where I spent my entire career before this. That combined with not only hiring and education and how long it takes to change procurements and, and contracts and contract vehicles and educating people on new technologies and rewriting software that's made up of tens of millions of lines of code and were slapped together over decades. And a lot of times people don't even understand, not the customer, not, not CIO anymore, understand how these things exist or how they operate. They're kind of very black box-ish. All of that had to be overcome at the same time that you're changing the culture, the technology, how you do work, the processes. And as being part of the government, we're very process-oriented because we have to be very auditable. And then learning, like the rest of the government, talking to your IG, your GAO, you're working with the different OMB, working with the different organizations. Well, how do we me measure Agile is not how we measure waterfall with EVM. And you could try to shoehorn it in or you can change and adapt and overcome the differences in a different way. And I think the government is sorting all of that out at the same time that we are pushing ahead on changing. And I've enjoyed watching, in fact, some of the best moments I've ever had is watching legacy systems be shut off for the final time and rolled off the floor. And it's small victories like that. To a lot of people, they didn't know, and, and, and certainly no one outside the USPTO would have noticed. But Another big victory we just had uh, this year for the first time, we measured a system at five nines. Uh, it's our website. 
Uh, it's dual locations. It's cloud-based. It, we hit five nines availability for it. Uh, when I got to the USPTO, we didn't even measure how many nines it was, but I tell you, it wasn't even two. <laughs> so uh, I've seen that evolve and, and taking that longer term saying I'm not going to address one or two things to make my mark, that I'm going to address everything holistically slowly was key to the importance of what I think the organization, the USPTO, has achieved in IT. Let's talk about some of those achievements because one of the things you mentioned, uh, there's uh, all this talk about IT modernization in government. And you talk about how you've really taken that long view to modernize a lot of what's happening at PTO. So talk about how you approached IT modernization. What are some of the pieces, parts that people really should keep in mind? Uh, I know there's a lot of talk about Agile, but it's not all Agile. There's multiple pieces. So go through some of them that you think are most important. So when I first got to the USPTO, almost the entirety of the budget was operations and maintenance. I, I mean, it wasn't quite 100%, but it might as well have been. And the prevailing attitude was is no major improvements had been made to the IT systems in at least a decade, uh, if not longer. Uh, a lot of the hardware was very old. Uh, a lot of the systems, some of the systems had started way back in the 1970s. And you look at that set of technology and the fact that back in those, those days, the software was built to run on a particular piece of hardware, and you certainly couldn't just compile it and run it on something else. And the languages that existed back then didn't exist today. And when I first got to the USPTO, people ran to me in droves and said, if you don't fund the O&M at its current rate, everything will fall apart, the world will end. A real hellfire and brimstone type of conversation. I'm like, this can't be right. And being a former software engineer, I sat down and looked at a lot of the, actually looked at a lot of the code, really delved into some of the architecture and um, chose a couple of things and said, you know what? I'm just cutting those budgets for O&M in half. And people freaked out. But over time, uh, now I kept that money in reserve and, and, and just in case. But guess what? The world didn't end. And uh, we then slowly took that money and reinvested it in other areas to make stabilizing improvements, everything from networking to team training and education. And slowly over time, we did it more and more and more and more using educated tactical, very tactical strikes on those budget lines and started pooling our money. So today, this year, it's about 50-50, 50% O&M, 50% uh, capital investment, or what we call SIF funds. And that's just an internal designation inside of our organization. We set aside so much for O&M, which includes just replacement of hardware and systems and equipment and keeping things operational. And then we siphoned all the rest of that money into capital investment where we planned new projects. And those are the agile DevOps projects. The old stuff we still run mostly as waterfall-based projects because they're done. We don't modify them unless there's a court action or a court order or some change in the law that we have to adapt to. And then we, make, we turn them into capital investment projects. We don't modify them or enhance them as part of O&M, which was a big cultural change because for years they're like, oh, you want to tweak something small or add a button or move this or change a color here or whatever. Well, we'll just add that to O&M. That's not what O&M is for. O&M is keeping it alive. And some people tell you the O&M should be a little bit higher than normal. I mean, I think it's government-wide it's like 72 73%, and I think that's a little too high. But you launch a system under capital investment, and then as soon as you launch, it goes into production, it immediately becomes O&M. 
So that money now shifts from one category to another. So if your O&M this year is 50-50 and next year it's 55-45 and the year after that 60-40 and then it comes back down, I'm sure it ebbs and flows. So it's not – that's a metric, but it's not the key metric to modernization, right? Right. Absolutely. One of the metrics that we've adapted to internally that I think the government has to understand is there's a concept that once a system is released, it needs continuous operation and maintenance. Like people there waiting to keep it working. I don't believe in that, actually. It should take almost nothing to keep something operational as is. Now, a lot of our legacy systems, if people aren't there to push the button, the island will explode. And uh, you want to not build new modern systems like that. I mean, I came from a place where systems ran for years, literally years, without being touched. And building that level of robustness, certainly in a cloud platform, a virtual environment where you have multiple versions, and even if one server has a problem, you take that one server out of rotation and you bring up one or two more to meet your need. That capability and flexibility has grown over the years where now it's commonplace. I mean, I can do it in any one of the cloud providers that are available, even to the public, even as a private citizen, if I wanted to do that. And so you have to embrace those technologies and that understanding that your O&M, the modern systems should not need as much O&M per whatever measure you want, thousand lines of code, complexity, number of users, whatever, that the old legacy systems, which needed a lot of hand-holding and daily grooming to keep operational. And if you find yourself building modern systems that do need that, then you've got a problem. You really need to look at what you're doing, how you're measuring it, how you're testing it, and, and, and so on. Let's take a quick break because I want to go back and talk more about IT modernization, and budget's a big part of that. Uh, my guest today is John Owens the U.S. Patent and Trademark Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is John Owens, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. Now, John, before break, we were talking a little bit about your IT modernization efforts, and you talked about O&M versus what in the government talk DME or capital investment. PTO is a little different than most agencies. You don't have to depend on Congress for your IT budget. All of it or most of it comes from user fees. And you guys have a capital improvement fund. Talk a little bit about what that capital improvement fund is. Is it similar to a working capital fund? Give us some insights. The United States Patent and Trademark Office is completely 100% fee funded. We are zero tax burden. Though we are appropriated, the way that works is Congress gives us back what we believe we are going to collect in fees. And uh, we cannot overspend what we collect. So some years, obviously, that's an estimate. Some years we collect more and some years we collect less. Extra money is deposited into our account. There are very specific technical terms for all of this, but I'm going to make it simple. All of our money is zero-year money in government speak. So we weather the ebbs and flows based on the funds in that account that uh, we collect. So no tax burden, but we do go through the appropriations just for all the government people out there. And just to be clear, zero your money means it's use it or lose it or it never expires? Never expires. So you always have that money in there? Yes. Which is a huge benefit. I mean, even MGT Act, if you're familiar with that, they're only giving agencies three years to spend the money. Uh, I think there was some concern that they'd become a quote-unquote slush fund, but that's a whole different discussion. (laughs) Yeah, one that I don't have any knowledge of. So the USPTO zero-year money is, and it's all fee-funded. So 
there are some pluses and minuses. When a normal CIO that's appropriated gets funding and they get X millions, that's exactly what they get. Sometimes, in fact, many times throughout the year, I have been told I'm getting X and get less than X. Sometimes that variance is small, sometimes it is large, and it depends on the economy or if our estimates are correct. Or sometimes someone will make a legal call that suddenly patents are, uh, that we were collecting user fees for are no longer valid and therefore we don't collect fees. So um, there, is a, there is a plus and minus to this setup. Personally, I like not being a tax burden and <laughs> being a taxpayer. But um, And I think that if you want a patent or a trademark, it's well worth the investment to have the government back your intellectual property. Now, that all being said, internally, what is O&M and what is our capital investment dollars is completely up to us. We look at what our customers want. We know what we have to operate and maintain. And yes, today we operate and maintain legacy systems and next-gen systems, sometimes simultaneously before we finally shut one off. And uh, so O&M does vary a little bit, but we want as much toward capital investment as humanly possible because that way we can measure and manage the rate of progress on making those changes that bring in the modern technology as needed to overcome the legacy issues that we, of course, have. So pluses and minuses there. It, it is normal for O&M and SIF to vary a little bit. It, SIF has been as high as 60% and as low as 40% at the USPTO. I think a 50-50 split is a, a strong one, even when looking at industry. Uh, and I certainly look at continuous ways of reducing O&M because the quicker I can replace the legacy systems, I think the better off our constituents that pay user fees for patents and trademarks will see improvements in the environment. So are you able to move money over the last, again, eight and a half, nine years, you've been able to move a whole lot of money. How has that process worked? Meaning, how do you make those decisions and how do you measure, hey, hey this email system, when it was on premise, was costing us $50 a seat. Now, now the cloud's costing us $20 a seat and we have that $30 differential. Talk a little bit about your process to do that. We do follow a standard Clinger Cohen SIPC process at the USPTO. We formulate business cases. We update them at least yearly, including everything associated with them, which is going through the entire SIPC, you know, including the ITRB review, my peer review. And of course, we have a funding process that is separate and unique to USPTO where we manage the budget, and that's led by the CFO. And um, it is a business discussion. What business projects do we have? What do we want to replace when? What do we feel will make the biggest bang for the buck, both in cost savings but also productivity increases? Knowing that we are a production-based environment, our examiners are the more units or the more applications they process for patents and trademarks can earn the agency more money. And of course, I, I may have mentioned this to you before. I know I've mentioned it on other programs reduction in time due to system outages is directly that money is pulled out of my budget because we didn't make the money. So a lot of CIOs don't understand when I tell them, oh yeah, an hour of downtime of patents, I lose a million and a half dollars out of my budget. So I'm very concerned about keeping the systems operational. So it's really an internal discussion, but once we tell OMB what we're going to do with the money, then we have to follow all the processes. And of course, uh, we regularly brief the Hill and, and everyone else, keeping them apprised of our progress, uh, which has been slow and steady, but at least it's been steady. 
and uh, about the systems that we've installed and the ones that we've shut off and how that's going. It's interesting. An hour of downtime on your patents is a million out of your budget. How do you deal with that as the CIO? I mean, luckily you know your money. So on September 30th, if you have a million dollars left over or $5 million left over, that's one thing, but you can never be a million dollars short because that's, that's death in many ways. Yeah. Well, that means I have, because our earnings are really the next year earnings, they just don't give me that money the next year. It's not really out of my budget for the current year. So anti-deficiency act, while it's important, that may not apply as much as it does to other CIOs. Yes. Uh, that's... I mean, well, no, we still have the anti-deficiency Correct. act. We cannot spend more than we collect, but Normally, our collections happen a year after examination only because examination, we charge very little for examination. And then we make up those fees in the out years in the protection fees, those those registration fees. So I get that because it's it's what would be bad, as you said, that if you, the fluctuation happens, if there's an economy, a, a change in the law or something, and then all of a sudden – you're expecting, and let's make up a number, $50 million, and you, and you only get $30 million, that's a huge hit. Uh, have you, did you experience that, that back in 2013, 2012? When- yes, in 2008, 2009, we certainly experienced it. Uh, sequestration was the biggest impact. I think mid-year I lost almost half of my budget. So that was a lot of stuff that was going actually quite well that just suddenly one day stopped and then uh, you know got picked up again. So, and that had a huge impact. It wasn't just a few months for sequestration. You think about losing all of those teams and then having to rebuild them because those people don't stick around, right? I mean, those contractors don't stick around in the re-procurement process. That had a major impact. But there are small variances like that through almost every year that I've been at the PTO. And it's just something you learn to deal with. Just because we have no-year money and we have uh, some money if we over-collect, based on our estimations that we can tap into, doesn't mean that the agency runs to use it. We are very frugal. We pinch every penny. We do not buy things because it's the end of the year. We do not procure things because it's the end of the year. We are very, very, very frugal because we also have two, the patents uh, and the trademarks PACs, the uh, public advisory committees that come in and they look at everything that we do as representatives to the public and make sure that we are frugal with their fees since they are paying the agency for the work that we do. I remember writing about the sequestration hit you guys took. I think I spoke with your CFO back then, and, and uh, he was very clear about the impact it was having across the agency. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump into some of those modernization efforts. My guest is John Owens, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is John Owens, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. John, we talked a lot about your career. You're almost nine years at PTO. We talked a little bit about the, the money side. Let's just jump in and talk a little bit about what the status is of those two big IT modernization projects, Patent End-to-End and Trademark Next Generation. Yeah, they're not our only two projects. Just so you know, internally we do about 200 a year, and I'm very proud of that. I've seen that grow from when I first got there to a, a couple dozen to literally moving on, you know, with the, on all cylinders moving forward. But those big projects are very important as we look at replacing the legacy systems with something modern, cloud-based, and scalable. So patents end-to-end, the first product there, along with a bunch of infrastructure I will not bore you with, is Docket Application Viewer. It's how the examiner and their management manage their uh, dockets and what they're working on. 
that was released a couple years ago. That's going very well. We reduced the amount of investment there, but kept it alive, adding continuous features and functionality to it that the examiners have been waiting on for quite some time. And it's working through a very beautiful, modern, scalable web interface built on HTML5 and JavaScript. And I think that the examiners love it. This year, we released the Office Correspondence Tool, which is a replacement for one of our biggest legacy systems and most unstable legacy systems. It was called OACS, O-A-C-S. And uh, that's being rolled out to the examination core. Of course, whenever you get a large rollout, even though it goes through tests, you hit a bug or two. And I'm very grateful we built that infrastructure, that agile but development, but also operationally agile DevOps infrastructure uh, because uh, we've hit the occasional bug and very rapidly through automated build, test, and deployment and our blue-green environments are able to release patches within 24 to 48 hours for that product. And I think that's being, in fact, I saw the stats this morning of people's comments and I always find it exciting when they're asking for more features than they are complaining about issues uh, by a long stretch. So I'm very happy that that's going on. Search is a little bit behind, about a year behind. It was a difficult task. So the way the internet search works, when you do a query on any search product, they do a quick query, they time box it because they want to give you results fast, and your results are based on what other people are querying and what's in the cache. USPTO can't do that. When I search for, as an examiner, everything, uh, the two words cat and dog within three words of one another in any document of the five petabytes of documents that we have, uh, you need every document, every last one. And by the way, you need it quickly, uh, within second or so. And on top of that, you need to be able to flip through those pages in under a second, actually a half a second each. So those are service level requirements that quite honestly no one else has ever accomplished. We just overcame those service level requirements about six months behind. And like I said, the product has slipped about a year, but it now is in the hands of 200 examiners and they're looking at it and they're giving positive feedback and asking for more features and functions. Again, more features and functions than complaining about bugs and the performance is outstanding. Overcoming those technical hurdles, that technical discovery, is something that's always troublesome, right? Because your customer's like, well, John, you're a year late. And I'm like, well, no one's ever done this before. I've investigated. We've never accomplished this. And now that we have, now we can move on to adding fit and finish and some of those cool features that everyone would have wanted. And so that's just an example on how in a very DevOps way you overcome those obstacles with continuous releases. You inch closer and closer and closer to even something you don't know how to technically accomplish. Whereas in the old days with Waterfall, you would have spent three or four years and realized the product didn't meet your needs. Like the previous, twice the, uh, the patent system had been tried to be replaced and those both met. And actually, it might have been three times it was tried to be replaced and it met in failure. This is the first time we've not only shut off legacy systems in the patents environment, but here are the three major examiner systems, and they're being replaced. The last one a little late, but better late than never. Let me jump in real quick, because on the replacement system, the search piece, you said it's in the hands of 200 examiners. So is that a pilot? Is that, is that full production or at least partial in, initial operating capability? That is in our production environment. And that's our user-centered design team. 
examiners, uh, the patents management along with the union have designated approximately 200 people to be actual examining users of products as we build them. That way we know we build them and people are happy with them when they get them. So I can shut off the legacy systems. Now this system will shut off multiple legacy systems. The east and west search systems will shut off and be replaced by this new system. And the union has built some confidence. I know during the last PPAC, the Patents Advisory Committee, the union was confident in our past rollouts and how we handled issues that were discovered and that we were going to wait till the quality was what the examiner needed. And so we've gotten a lot of cooperation there. I cannot stress enough in a very agile DevOps environment, having whatever user is going to use the system actually using it while you're testing it out. So it is a production environment. They're not full-time using it, but they do have it. They do use it. They do test it. They do give us feedback. And right now, a good number of requests for new features. Along with this, we also have the MyUSPTO environment, which allows our customers, both for patents and trademarks, to customize their own point of view, help pay their fees, and so on and so forth. That's an entirely brand new system. It used to be piecemealed in the legacy systems with a lot of a lot of different logins and user management. We're going to a single sign-on, single credentials, single roles-based access system, which is now incorporated into several environments. Along with that, we're replacing EFS Web, which we just enhanced to take in text. We used to just take in pictures of text. Uh, now we're actually taking in text. All kinds of benefits there for automated text processing and so on. So the legacy system was enhanced. Our customers are getting used to it. And then December of this year, where we'll have the replacement for EFS Web go into beta. And then over the next year or so, a little over a year, we will roll out enhancements to that and our public offerings through public and private pair, which is being replaced by this product that replaces EFS Web. And that product's name's Patent Center. So combined, we have a plan though it's stretched out from the original plan uh, that will end uh, in approximately 2020, replacing the bulk of both the externally facing to the public and internally facing systems. And then the little straggler systems that are used by certain art units to do biosequencing or chemical or analysis or so on and so forth, those are being replaced on a separate schedule. And let's move over to the trademark system next generation. There's plenty to follow up with, but I want to make sure we get into that as well. So our initial rollout of the trademark system did not go well. Lots of reasons why, but we at the USPTO like to learn from our failures, and I certainly would never tell you that we only have successes, because certainly that wouldn't be true, and I wouldn't believe anyone that told me that. The initial reception by the examiner was pretty poor. We tried to go to a completely online text editing environment that did not go well. And there were missing features and functionalities due to a lack of understanding of the legacy systems. It's been a hard road. I will, I think it's like uh, two years behind, but we are on a roadmap and a path to complete that work now. Uh, certainly, I hold tech stats on it and work within the OMB framework to make sure that the system is being monitored and tracked and the things that we didn't succeed on, we will replace. And we're doubling down our investment of Agile and our Agile coaching and getting our customers and our teams that combine our, well, I should say our customer and OCIO team back into the groove and making those changes that are necessary. And I'm looking for a clean rollout of that product. 
though late, next year. Now that will replace the internal system. Externally, we've had a lot of successes. We are replacing parts of the external system. We certainly have the Electronic Gazette. We have a new public search system over the last few years for trademarks. You can now get your Electronic Gazette on your iPad anywhere you'd like. And recently, one of the biggest things that we've released is some source code open to, to the public on GitHub. And it was for a uh, generic trademark mobile application. And there are a couple of companies now that have taken that source code and our documentation and turned it into publicly available apps that they support as part of that initiative. I think that was a, a very strong you know, way of getting out into the public connectivity and working with vendors that want to give value add to our environment. And doing that through open source has made me incredibly proud. All right, so several things there. Let me move back to one thing you mentioned earlier when you talked about the patent update. You talked about the blue-green environment. That's part of the DevOps. Talk a little bit about what that blue-green environment is and talk a little bit about how that works in terms of to help you get to that DevOps agile methodology. So DevOps is fundamentally working agile, which normally ended at the end of development through the operations area. It really extends it. Now, to facilitate DevOps, you do need some foundational technologies. Automated builds, automated tests, automated deployment are key. And in a cloud environment, having a staging area, or what used to be called a staging area, and a production area is critical. And, of course, the staging area is called blue, and the production environment is called green. And with a flip of a switch, within a few seconds, you can turn your production environment off, and all your customers, if you write your software right, will automatically migrate to blue without losing a beat. And blue, therefore, becomes your production green environment, and then the old green environment becomes blue. And the colors are really not important. You can call them anything you want, but it's really having ability to switch a staging environment fully into production and that production environment back. And then if you detect there's something wrong, something horribly went wrong, you can flip the switch back again and know that what you may have is the old system, but it's at least operational. So all that functional foundational technology, the automated builds, automated tests, automated deployment, and these two environments in the cloud are critical when you look at the, prob the problem of quickly releasing not only new functionality, but fixes to issues. And, you know, it's one thing to have 200 people testing your software, but eight 10,000 people do find some things. <laughs> I mean, it's inevitable. And then some of those may have impact and you have to quickly deploy them. And we have gotten down for our fee processing area, our MyUSPTO area, our PTAB area, which is the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, and our Patents End to End products. We can turn around bug fixes from discovery to full production rollout in 24 to 48 hours. And in industry, that's, yeah, well, we've been able to do that for a while. But in the federal government, that's huge, considering legacy changes took us months. And how long does it take to get out new capabilities? On average, I know every capability is different. Are you doing two-week sprint? Are you doing quarterly sprints? Most of our projects run uh, between uh, either two- or three-week sprints. We like to do quarterly releases at minimum, but we have done one sprint to deployment. We have done emergency fixes to deployment, but we like to get on a regular cadence. You also have to remember that unlike industry, I do have three unions at the USPTO to deal with, and sometimes you can too rapidly 
release something and then people get confused. There's usually a training aspect, but I really want to see, and on most of the systems currently see, quarterly releases to production. Not that all of them are new features and functions a user would happen to notice, but improvements on the back end, of course, stability. We like to run our technical debt for released products. No more than 50% of a sprint is technical debt, and the rest is new features and functionality. But that's once the product's released. All right, John, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can talk a little bit more about uh, DevOps and Agile. My guest is John Owens, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is John Owens, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. John, before break, we just started getting to the, the agile and the green and the blue and the technical debt. I want to move us over to security just briefly, because I think that's one of the most difficult pieces of agile. And one of the things that when I've talked to, for instance, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service over at DHS, they've automated so much of their security and they've automated so many pieces and parts of agile. How are you using automation and orchestration around security? So we have an entire automated test suite for security that we're continuously improving We've also brought in security and our IT security officer right in the beginning of every project. Architecturally, we've qualified a foundational layer of hardware and operating system and looked at what is available not only on our internal cloud offering but external clouds and making sure that we are completely compliant with the documentation, which certainly on the external clouds can be problematic at times. But I think as as the providers become more familiar on what it takes to be federally compliant, which is most of the time just documentation, automating those security scans, bringing in people early, deciding what technologies we can and cannot use and checking that box that says we can justify this, we can secure it, is really important because as a previous software engineer myself, I know that a lot of times the engineers looking at what expedient, not and their experience with the product, not is it securable, is it protected? And of course, in the federal government with the landscape that we have today, security is of utmost importance and people don't realize what it takes and what it costs to do that. So automation plays a heavy role, but then having vehicles available to you where you can call in specialized teams before production switches or rollouts or switching from blue to green and and so on, you really have to have targeted scanning human interaction. Your scripts will only tell you so much before a human goes, hmm, I wonder if I could do this. And you really do find another layer there. And remembering to do it along with your performance scans early enough in the process where you're not ready to roll out to find out that you have a problem. And because as much as we all have poems, no one likes having a large collection of poems or plan of actions and milestones, in case you don't know what that is, which is how we document our security vulnerabilities and how we're going to resolve them. And I think that action and milestone part is really important. I'd rather not have them at all. Now, that's not to say that we don't. We do. But we want to catch as many of those up front as humanly possible so we don't build a backlog of technical debt full of security vulnerabilities because certainly there's normally enough technical debt to to fill up as much as you can uh, deliver. So it's getting them up front, getting folks incorporated, training A lot of my internal folks did not understand really what security did and why they did it and 
making sure that they understand and our customers understand the importance of it is important too. And you mentioned your chief information security officer is involved in the beginning. Was that hard to get him or her involved in that agile side? Because security is usually, well, I'll look at it when you're done. And with agile, we know you got to look at it as you go along. Yeah. Her name is Remy and she is awesome. I have to say. So don't steal her, right? I <laughs> know. No one better steal her. That, that, trust me, people have tried. She's fantastic. And for her, I think once she saw Agile and everything going on, she realized that the poems were increasing and she wanted to do it. And certainly you want to bring your security team along. They have to see the power of Agile. They have to see the power of DevOps. But knowing that they play a critical role, and at first you're right that people were a little standoffish and, and um, poems started to increase. And then Remy took over and she said, you know, John, I really need to get ahead of this. And I'm like, awesome. Let's, let's talk about how to do that and how you fit into the systems development lifecycle and, and how we manage our Agile projects and what are your insertion points and what do you want and how are we going to track these POAMs because the developer never sees CSAM, right? They see uh, the product that we use uh, to track bugs and they're not bugs in that system. How do we get them in there? Who takes care of them? What is technical debt and so on and so forth? So I was very lucky she came right in and said, I need to get ahead of this. This is my responsibility. Let me work with my peers and really get ahead of it because Agile is powerful. DevOps is the way we're going. I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to get ahead of it. And uh, that included contract changes, uh, contractor changes, task order changes, and so on and so forth. And I was very lucky that my IT security officer, rather than, no, I'm going to stick in the framework that I've always stuck in, got ahead of it. And at the same time, the tools that you're using are getting better from the vendor community, from the ones maybe that are coming through, whether it's a continuous diagnostics and mitigation program or other programs. That's also making this move to Agile easier because you have more understanding of what the tools can do to automate the security checks. Absolutely. In fact, I'm, I think we change our security tools more often than almost every other tool. Most tools I like to get a couple of years out of before I make an investment that I immediately turn around and but the security tools is one that you're like, no, I need the latest and greatest tool. I, I may need multiple tools. And we're constantly making improvements there, constantly looking to our vendors to provide other scanning tools and technology, continuously integrating as much of that into our automated build and deployment process as possible. And, it's a, and that area changes all the time because that landscape changes all the time. John Owens is the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Chief Information Officer. John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I've been your host, Jason Miller. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. Your story. It lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. 
Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.